Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. I told her, I'm the kind of personality that gets embarrassed really easy, and I told my wife when I stood up, I said, make sure I didn't tuck my shirt in my underwear, because it kept slipping out. Worst things have happened in my days. I'm going to be in First Peter chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there. Lord, we love you. We celebrate you. We ask that this word would come forth um, clear, God, that I would be able to articulate plainly um, what your scripture teaches, that you would encourage us, that you would edify us, that you would thrust us forward in our calling and in our purpose to see the kingdom of God manifest itself amongst these people. To see the kingdom of God advance. We believe you for it. Our faith, God, rises up this morning. We trust you. We're sure that you're amongst us. Guard my lips, God. Guard my heart. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. Bless Jesus. Tertullian was a second century apologist, philosopher, uh, scholar, and he said this. He said that um, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. So he said just, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, there are two errors that are also trying to steal the gospel from you. And he went on to say that the two errors that are attempting to rob you of gospel truth are this. Number one, religion, a religious spirit. And number two, the theological term is antinomianism. Or um, sometimes they use the word irreligion. Uh, antinomianism, it means against law or against structure. So on, on one side of the true gospel, there's this religious spirit that says perform, perform, perform. And on the other side of the gospel, there's this other teaching, which Jude says that there are some that attempt to pervert the grace of God into licentiousness, or they pervert the grace of God into this idea that you can live however you want to live. And what Tertullian says is the gospel is neither of those things. And, th- and that most, most people in churches, they wrestle with back and forth. They're swinging the pendulum, trying to find the middle groove. And sometimes what happens is we just pick the lesser of evils. And so we stop preaching holiness because we're afraid that we're going to end up in religion. Does this make sense? Um, and what happens is we actually may end up in um, antinomianism or in this idea that you can live however you want to live and it doesn't matter. We're not legalist by any stretch of the imagination. We, the, the gospel primarily is a message. It's good news. The gospel is radically different from every other world religion. And it's radically different in this. Our message is not, here's a system which would you could step into and you could work your way up the pyramid and earn salvation. Our message is that salvation is earned. It is finished. This, this is, not, is not a set of rules that you follow in, er, in order to earn God's love. Our, our, our perspective of God is actually much higher than that. I'm saying that you couldn't earn your way to God if you were on your best day. There's no way that you could ever climb that pyramid high enough. 
He's much bigger. The only way to come to God, the God of all the universe, the sovereign, mighty, powerful God, the only way you come to Him is through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary. It's grace and grace alone. There's no other way. That's our message, is that, is that the gospel is, is final, it's final in, its, in its purpose. I'm saying that, that you can have abundant life today. No other system, no other you work your way up. This isn't Scientology where you go through, you read the right books and you buy all the material. I have nothing to sell you. It's a free gift. You can have abundant life today. You must be born again, though. You must come to Christ and receive a born-again experience. But in that, the gospel is also a message that says that you must come under the dominion of Jesus. He's, he is the offer, uh, the offer of salvation. He's extending a free gift to us, but he's also Lord. And his, his kingdom, the intention of the gospel is to set you free from sin so that you could live in life and you could advance his kingdom. And we know, we know things about his kingdom. Like, for instance, we know that the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We know that Paul said that the kingdom of God is love, joy, and peace, and righteousness, and the Holy Spirit. So we know, we know what this kingdom is like, and it's not like sin. It's not like darkness. And so we can't profess to be people of the kingdom of God and live as people of the kingdom of hell. It's counterintuitive. We're, we're, not, we're not working anywhere. And so what Tertullian was saying was, be, be really careful that you don't ever slip into a religious system that says you can work your way up the pyramid. That is offensive to the blood of Jesus. And on the flip side, don't ever let yourself slip into antinomianism. Okay, so I'm going to kind of hash this out today. It'll take a little time. I'm, I'm kind of in teacher mode today and not so much preacher mode. But I think if we can catch this, um, we'll, 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 be, we'll be helped. Because what I'm trying to say is that I never want to be found preaching a gospel of works. I never want to be found telling someone, you've got to do A, B, C, and D before you can be a Christian. It's a free gift. Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. I don't care what you did yesterday. It's offered for you today. Today is the day of salvation. We never want to be a people who offer a gospel of works. God forbid. But we also want to radically pursue holiness. Because our anointing relies on it. Our, our, us fulfilling our calling is, is largely dependent on us living in holiness. And I'm going to hash all that out, that out for you today. So we want to be a, a grace people. Our message is grace and grace alone. We agree with the reformers, right? Grace alone by faith alone. That is absolutely our message. You come to Christ by grace alone through faith alone. But we're also a people who are daily working towards holiness. Our message is not, you can be your own God. Our message is, come into the kingdom of God. Advance the kingdom of light. I'm going to hash all that out for you here in a minute. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it reads this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a, this, you be holy, for I am holy. That's a theme throughout the book of Leviticus. I think I pulled it two or three times for you. Um, but for instance, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1, 
the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Verse uh, chapter 20 and 26, he says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I've separated you from amongst the peoples, that you should be mine. You belong, what, what God's saying through Moses to Israel is that you belong to me. You are now my possession. Picture this peculiar people, this small nation of Israel amongst a plague of monotheistic religions. God calls them out and now he says, I'm holy and you're going to be holy. And then Peter grabs this concept, he pulls it from the Old Testament and places it right back on us. God's holy, so you should be holy. Now my primary purpose today is to answer two questions. The first question is this. How can the New Testament command us to be holy if we are already holy in Christ? How can Peter tell us, you set your mind on holiness. You exert energy, put intention on living a life of holiness if we are already found holy in Christ. This is our first question. And to be rather honest with you in in a kind way, this is a question that is is dominated the Christian uh, theological realms in, in our day. There, there is a new movement of teachers that are leaning very much towards antinomianism, and it's because we haven't digested the scriptures and really thought through these issues properly. Um, and so I want to do a little example. I've done this example for years now, and it's the best way that I can really explain um, the tenses of salvation. Micah, would you come forward for me? So scripture presents three tenses of salvation. It oftentimes says things like, you have been bought and you have been washed. You have been saved. So sometimes the scripture says, you have been saved. And then at other times the scripture, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 18, it says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. So now there is, you were saved. You are absolutely The the Scripture is adamant. You were saved. And now the Scripture says, you are being saved. And then at times it says, you will be saved. Fully saved. Saved in in a final sense. And so, Micah, come on down here for me. Um, this This is the best way I know to do this. Okay, so this is Micah. Let's say that Micah is... Here, turn around and face me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jerk you around, so please don't be embarrassed. Um, let's say... Actually, step up, because I'm going to make you hit the podium. Let's say that Micah um, is a gossip, okay? Micah is like the epitome of Southern, I'm really kind to your face, and I talk about you awfully behind your back. Okay, this is Micah. We're going to call him Gossip Micah for the next hour or so. Okay, um, so let's say Micah comes into church this morning. He does not know Jesus. Where does he stand today? Scriptures say that he stands condemned, that every one of us outside of the gospel of Jesus are fully condemned. We have inherited from, the, the theological term is from federal headship, from Adam, we have inherited a sin nature, okay? So Micah is fully sinful. It particularly expresses itself in um, southern lady gossip, okay? Okay, so Micah comes into church today. He hears the gospel preached with clarity. He sees a very stunning young man preaching the gospel, and he says to himself, number one, that is a handsome dude right there. Um, and, and number two, the gospel penetrates his heart, and he goes, I, I want to come to Christ. 
So in this moment, okay, Micah, let's step here for me. I'm going to jerk you all around. So in this moment, Micah repents and believes, and this is what we, there, I'm, this is a bit of an over, oversimplification, but, because there's a lot that happens here. But, but primarily for, for our conversation, in this moment, he has now been pronounced justified. When he says yes to Jesus, the gavel of God hits that little wood thing that it hits. I don't know what it's called, but it hits that wood thing, and it declares Micah fully righteous. Has Micah lived a righteous life? No. He is now, the scripture uses this imagery. It's, it's as if Jesus takes off his robe of righteousness and clothes Micah in Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus stands before God, or Jesus, you're not Jesus, you're Micah. Micah no longer stands before God in a judicial nature. God's no longer Micah's judge, but he now is born again, and he transfers into this next posture, um, which is a parental nature. So back here, Micah, let's do this. I, I really want you to get this. Okay, so uh, Micah's not a very good dancer. We're getting that so far. Um, square dance is not our thing. Here, Micah is, God is Micah's judge. And he is condemned. Here, Micah is a sinner. When he confesses faith in Christ, he is clothed with the righteousness of Christ, washed in the blood of Jesus, and God declares him righteous, even though he's a sinner. We all know it. We got videotape record. Micah talks a lot of junk, okay? He just loves gossip. Okay, so Micah is a sinner. He's declared holy, and now he, he's, there's so much that happens here, but this theological term is justified. He's now justified. He's born again. He's given a new nature, and he's adopted into the family of God, right? Romans chapter 8. So here, now, therefore, there is no condemnation for Micah the gospel, gospel gossiper who is in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So here, Micah steps into a parental relationship. Do you understand the distinction here? So here he's judged by God. Here he's loved by God. But let's say that Micah gets saved today and tomorrow he goes home and he wakes up and his sister, she calls with the news, right? Aunt Sally has been cheating on her husband. And so now Micah enters into this conversation of gossip, and Micah's just letting it fly. He's just letting all the gossip fly. He, he does his thing. And then when he hangs up the phone, he feels something strange. Okay? Something's not sitting right, right? So, so here, has Micah lost his salvation? No, because he didn't earn his salvation. Um, here, what Micah is experiencing is the same thing that happens when my daughter pitches a fit and rolls on the ground, okay? He's not experiencing the judgment of God. This is not the wrath of God aimed at Micah. This is called discipline, okay? And so this, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is for our help to lead us into righteousness. So all of our lives, we live in this process called sanctification. And I believe it's of my theological stance that the scriptures teach what's called progressive sanctification. That in this moment, he's declared perfectly righteous. He's positionally righteous, but he's not yet practically righteous. So here he has, for the rest of his life, he is going to be learning practical righteousness. Okay, it's why I believe in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that as to perfection, I've not yet attained it, but I forget what's behind and I strain forward towards what's ahead. So Paul says, I haven't obtained perfection, but I'm still working towards it. And so here, now Micah's got this feeling, right? This gut check feeling. He feels 
what we would probably say like gross. You, you know that feeling when you feel spiritually gross? You know you did something you shouldn't do. And we've got to learn to interpret this feeling properly. Okay? Because what the enemy wants to do is to slide in condemnation. Okay? And the enemy wants to say, you don't belong to God. God doesn't love you. That feeling that you feel, that's God's rejection. That's God's wrath. That's condemnation, okay? That's demonic condemnation. And when Micah experiences condemnation, he needs to look back at the cross and say, no, I am not bought by my works. I am bought by the blood of Jesus. And no height, depth, width, nothing separates me from the love of God. And so while I feel conviction, I do not feel rejection, okay? So does my daughter like it? when I have to put my hand on her butt. No. But, 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 but Hebrews in chapter 4 says that we all had fathers who disciplined us, and we're thankful that they disciplined us, right? So in the same sense, when you step into parental relationship, we now step into this idea of discipline. And so, so let me show you something. When you don't understand sanctification, when you don't understand this process of living a life of holiness, of God walking, we're going to walk this way, walking with you, leading you. The psalmist, remember, says that he's the good shepherd, that he leads him where? Into paths of righteousness. For what? For his namesake. So when you understand that the shepherd is leading you into paths of righteousness, all of your life you're walking with him. And there may be times where Micah struggles and he sins and he falls and the shepherd picks him back up, may has a heart, you know, a dad talking with him, and he continues to lead him. Now, it's our job to never to submit to condemnation. We never want the enemy to talk us out of this process. You understand that? But when we don't understand this process, when we don't understand what's going on here, we'll start to, um, we'll start to, we'll start to preach against justification. So, so this is what I'm trying to say. Some in the church have leaned so far into this position that they've forgotten that position. They start to think, that the only way to get into this walk with God is through your works. And it's not. So for another analogy, can you walk back with me? Can you do a moonwalk? Can you moonwalk? No, it would be, just checking. Just, I told you he couldn't dance, so I was just checking with you. Okay, so here's John Wesley's analogy, okay? This is uh, Wesley's picture. Wesley calls this the front porch, okay? So the only way you get in the, the house, the only way you get in the front porch is by confessing faith in the work of Christ. And then... When you confess faith, you step into the house. Now, when you live in a house with God, you've become his child. And so all of your life, you're being corrected, you're being taught, you're being disciplined, because you have a purpose, right? God's called you and equipped you to do a work for his glory, and you can't do that unless he continues to lead you. Okay, so when people don't understand justification, they forget about it, they start making this process um, the gospel. And so if you don't understand what I mean when I stand up here and preach, when I stand here and I preach a message against sexual immorality, if you don't understand my theological posture, you'll think that I'm saying that if you ever struggle with lust, you don't belong to God. And that's never what I'm saying. You understand? That's never what I'm saying. You've got to learn to perceive teaching through this filter. Okay, so if I'm standing here and saying, you have got to learn to control your thought life better, I'm preaching to this posture. Does that make sense? I'm preaching to the sanctification posture. But I want to always keep both of these in hand so that I don't lean so far on justification that says all you've got to do is come to Christ and you can live however you want to live. 
And I don't lean so hard on sanctification that I say, if you don't do everything right, God doesn't love you. But the logical position, follow John Wesley's um, analogy here. This is logic. If you have come to Christ, if you walked up the porch and through the door, you are in the process of sanctification. It's the logical follow-through. If you have been born again, set free from sin, you will not live freely in sin. If you understand that God set you free with a purpose and that sin's primary goal is to rob you of that purpose and to produce death in your spiritual life, then you will not, you will not come to Christ and live however you want to live. You'll say, Jesus, help me to live like you. Does this, under, does this make sense? And so the final posture, these are the three tenses of salvation. So here you were saved, and here you are being saved. And the final posture over here by Haley is there's a coming day when you will be fully saved. You will finally be saved. So when Micah passes from death to life, he is fully saved. Okay, stay right here. So here we are set free from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is dealt with. Here, the power of sin we're being delivered from it. Every day, God's, God's leading us into greater holiness. And here on that final day, when we look Jesus face to face, the scripture says, when we see him, we will be like him. On that final day, the possibility of sin is done with. Okay? Penalty of sin there, power of sin here, possibility of sin is fully done away with. Does this make sense? Okay, you can sit down, Micah. And so, as we come to the scripture, and, and, and Peter says, be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. He's not saying if you've got to be holy in order to be in covenant with God. He's speaking to this position, okay? And we've got our wires so crossed um, in, in Western preaching today. We're, we're really confused about this process. But this is what I'm presenting you today is the traditional historical position of Christianity. This has been what the church has taught forever, that, that no one comes to Christ based on their own works. Luther was mad about that idea. But Martin Luther himself said, it was actually part of his thesis, that, that all of the Christian life is a matter of repentance. What did he mean by that? That all of your life, God is leading you to, he, he's revealing to you places where you need to repent. And, that, and, and that's, not God's, that's not God being an angry, frustrated God with you. That's a father trying to teach their kid not to live, uh, in, to, not to live in such a way that will ruin their life. When your when your uh, when your eighteen year old gets a credit card, what do you say? Cut that sucker up, right? Like, like don't get yourself in credit card debt right away. And and that's a lot of uh, what's happening in this position. God's telling you, look, you've you've got freedom, you've got liberty, but don't use like be be wise with how you live, because the, the enemy is out to rob you. He's out to rob you. And so, are we a grace church? Yes, emphatically, yes. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone. There's nothing you could ever do to earn Jesus. You ain't that good. You are just not that good. The, our, and our grace posture, it, it, it also, it flows out when we're dealing with people who are struggling. We've got to understand that people will fall. People are going to have bumps and bruises. And so we want to operate from a posture of grace while always realizing that our aim is to walk with God towards holiness. Because the holier we walk, the more available we are for God to use us. If I had time to go to Timothy, when Paul tells Timothy to set yourself apart in, in a great house, there are many vessels, some made of wood, some made of clay, and some of silver. But if you would set yourself apart, Timothy, you could be a vessel um, for a peculiar use, a particular use. So Paul tells Timothy, set yourself apart so God can use you. 
And so to the extent that we're set apart, we're usable by God. You guys get where I'm going with this? So the first question was, how can the scriptures tell us to be holy if we are already holy in Jesus? The truth is that we are positionally holy in Jesus. The scriptures are telling us to be practically holy. And, and again, hear me. You do not become practically holy by the strength of the flesh. You become practically holy by submitting yourself to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Paul says when you're struggling with sin, the, the way that you deal with that sin is by the Holy Ghost, you put to death the flesh. So even in my righteousness, it's the Holy Spirit's work. I'm submitting to it. You guys understand what I'm saying by that? First question, how can it tell us to be holy if we're holy in Christ? It's telling us to be practically holy. It's telling us to learn to live a life of righteousness so that God can use us. The third question, or the second question is this. Um, if we've been delivered from the penalty of sin in this position, and we will fully be delivered um, from the possibility of sin when we die, then why in the world would we put all of this effort into living holy now? Okay, and this is a lot of people's problem. They say, if God has, has, has dealt with the penalty of sin, and if he will rid me of the possibility of sin on the last day, then why should I work at a personal project of holiness, a project of personal holiness? Do you understand the question? Why would we take time week after week to encourage one another, to talk about, to deal with? Why, why, do I ever, why should I preach on holiness and not just preach justification by faith alone? Why do we do it? Why does holiness matter? And that's the second question that I want to finish up dealing with. Are you okay with that? Number one, Peter tells us to be holy. Um, the, the first answer to that question is because um, your sanctification is the evidence of your justification. In, in that, you, you can't, I don't believe that you can truly be born again and live in antinomianism. I don't believe you can truly be born again and live however you want to live, right? It's the logical. You stepped on the doorpost. You opened the door. The door doesn't open up the neighbor's house. It opens up to your house, right? Like you walked in the house. You're in the house. It's, it's the evidence. And so um, Jesus says things like good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. And then he says, you know, remember in John 15, this little analogy that I am the vine and you are the branch. And if you abide in me, you're going to produce a particular kind of fruit. So what does that mean? If you're plugged into Jesus, then you're going to produce good fruit. And then follow the rest of the analogy. My father, he's the vine dresser. And he will prune you in order that you produce more fruit. So when you feel that gross, this is what I'm trying to teach. Man, I want to teach you this so bad. When you feel that gross feeling, when you know you sinned, right? Like you opened your mouth and you knew you shouldn't have opened your mouth. Learn to love that conviction. Because that conviction is God's pruning you to be more fruitful for him. You, as, as a mature adult, realize that when God speaks to you about your sin, He's not rejecting you. He's trying to lead you to further fruitfulness. Okay, so Jesus, He's given us this analogy. You are now plugged into me. When you abide in me, when you come to union with Christ, you are now plugged into me and you produce a certain kind of fruit. Holiness is the logical predecessor of salvation. J.I. Packer is a prominent theologian. In his lectures on holiness, he's getting pretty old. Um, and in his last couple years, he's, he, I think he's 91 today. In his last couple years, he's focused primarily on teaching catechism and the idea of practical holiness. Um, but he says this. He says that in salvation, Christ has, uh, has, has produced a death blow to your desire for sin. 
So when you are born again, there is this death blow at the sin nature, and you no longer, if you, if you truly love Jesus, you no longer desire sin. You should begin to desire holiness. You no longer want to belong to Adam. I don't, I don't want to belong to the old man. I want to belong to Christ. And so he says there is this mystical thing that happens at the born-again experience that we, sh- that we need to understand, that you are given new desires. God produces in you new wants. You should wake up in the morning. If you are truly born again, you will wake up in the morning and say, God, I just love, you should have moments where you just overflow with praise. And so Packer says, there's just no way. The number one reason why we talk about holiness, there's just no way to be born again and not express Christ-like nature. Paul says you've been delivered from the nature of Adam. You've been born into the nature of Christ. It's what you express. Number two, why do we care about holiness? Um, is because we understand that our, our practical living undergirds our profession of worship. Jesus says, it, this, is a, this is thematic of John. If you follow John from about ch- chapter 14 into about chapter 18, you can find Jesus on multiple occasions saying something like this, if you love me, you will obey me. Your love for me is produced in obedience towards me. So John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and reveal myself to him. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. And look in 1 John. I could show you this all throughout um, John's epistles. 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God. That you obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. What does that mean? This is love for God, that you live in holiness. You live in submission to Jesus, and that's not a burden. That's a pleasure. That you've come to the understanding, for heaven's sake, that you are going to live serving someone. It's either your sin, it's either hell or Jesus. And I'm telling you that I'd much rather serve this wonderful king than serve hell. And so you, you, his commands are not burdensome, they're life. We, I love and adore him. So John says that love for God is expressed through holy living. And you remember the Old Testament principle that obedience, it's better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So why is the scripture continually tell us to live holy is because obedience is better than sacrifice. It's because our worship, in, in some sense, is frail without being undergirded by holy living. Everyone, if I tell you, I can tell my wife all day long, I love you so much, you're beautiful, you're wonderful. But if I'm in the bed with another woman, I don't mean what I'm saying, right? Like, like we, we understand that principle, that, that, that we, we say, talk is what? Cheap. And so to come into a worship experience and to enter into praise, which we should, right? Like we should express adoration, but not to not undergird that praise with a life that's attempting to obey and honor God is to offer sweet nothings to God. You guys, you guys understand what I'm saying? This just matters. It just really, really matters. If we don't get this right, we've got nothing right. If we don't get the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, into a life of holiness, we have nothing. We're no different than any other world religion. And in my just so you know, in my theological framework, in my 
my theological mind, you cannot receive Christ as Savior without receiving him as Lord. You don't get to pick and choose what sides of Jesus you like and throw the other sides out. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't say, I, I would love salvation from you, Jesus, but I'll be my own king. And, and that's really what antinomianism is about. It's about you being able to come to Jesus for salvation, but be your own king. And I'm saying, when you come to Jesus, you come to all of him. And I'm telling you, if you forgive my language in this statement, um, if you crown yourself as Lord, you are going to be a really, a, like, a really sucky Lord. Like, you are not a good king. You are, you are not, I promise you. I've tried it a time or two, and you are not a good God, okay? I hate to burst your bubble. You're not good at it, okay? So the opportunity to submit to Jesus, you should be jumping. That you can actually allow Jesus to lead you, and you don't have to make your own decisions, that is good news in itself, okay? We, you were not wired to be your own God. So you can't pick and choose what you want about Jesus, you receive him all. If he is your savior then and the provider of your forgiveness, he must be your Lord, ultimately your king. Holiness completes our worship. It solidifies our worship. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 12, okay? If you would, sit yourself in Romans chapter 12. Think about, if I say salvation by grace alone, there's two epistles in the New Testament that your mind should go, this is what they're about. It's Romans and it's Galatians. Romans and Galatians are primarily about being saved by grace, justification by faith. So from 1 to 12, Paul has just pronounced this, this beautiful gospel. It's his most articulate presentation of the gospel, that you are saved by grace alone. That's where you get like, that's, that's why we have, that we have the Romans road, right? Do you remember that evangelistic thing, the Romans road? Um, the wages of sin is death. There is now no condemnation. All those texts are in Romans, right? Um, and so when you get to 12, Paul's just spent so much time talking about salvation, and then he gives us this statement in Romans 12.1. So then, my friends, so then, he's pivoting the, um, the epistle. So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is what? True worship true worship that you should offer him. Paul calls true worship a response to his gospel in faith and then a life that offers the body as a living sacrifice and wants to please him. And so, I, I don't have any intention of using, I, I, it's hard because I'm trying to pastor and I'm trying to speak to theological controversies, but I'm not one to throw stones at names. And so, I'm, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. But there, there have been statements made over the last couple of years like, the Christian should never try to please God. One, one pastor, I think to quote him correctly, said, um, it's high time to rid ourselves of God-pleasing. And that's, that's, that's anti-New Testament. Okay, because Paul says things like, please God. Like, live a life pleasing to God. And there, there's a teaching, for instance, in the church right now. Um, and again, I think a lot of people have good hearts. And so don't, uh, don't hear me throwing stones. I think they're good hearts, but these concepts, these New Testament concepts haven't been taught too well, but there's teachings going around like the Christian should never repent. The Christian should never repent again because he's been just, he's fully righteous. The problem with that is that when you step into covenantal relationship with God, God likens that to a marriage. Can you imagine if I said to my wife, I will never apologize to you again because you married me. 
Like, like it just doesn't work, okay? Because, because when you entered into covenantal relationship, you, enter, you entered into a, a covenant, into, into this thing where, with give and take. And when you mess up, you do the same thing you do in marriage. You apologize, you, you repent, you, you set things right, and you do your best not to make it happen again. That's the Christian life that's presented in the scriptures. It's not this thing of, you can't, this is what's so hard, you can't overemphasize grace, okay? And this is what sometimes the, the term hyper-grace teachers are, are using. You can't overemphasize grace, but you can apply grace in a way that it wasn't meant to be applied, okay? So grace, was, grace doesn't mean that you can live your Christian life and you could cheat on your wife now because Jesus died for you. It doesn't mean that you can, but, but the problem is, is that we're flirting with this in the teaching in the West right now. And so I, I want you to be very clear um, about these distinctions. Um, and, and, and so what I'm saying is that when you mess up in the Christian life, you repent, you ask for forgiveness, but you understand that just because you messed up doesn't mean that you were kicked to the curb. Okay, um, there is a such thing as hyper-Calvinism. There's also a such thing as hyper-Arminianism. Um, and so traditional Arminianism, and what we would confess um, in our branch of Christianity, we would call ourselves Arminians, okay? Um, traditionally, that's, that's pointed at Jacob Arminius, but, but most often we're, we're going to Wesley. We're dealing with Wesley's theology. Um, Charles Finney is probably one of my greatest preachers of church history, my favorite preachers of church history. He's one of my favorites. But theologically, he took Arminianism to a place that we didn't want to take it. And it's the idea that, um, any of you guys grew up in a church where you got saved every other, every other week? Anyone do that? Like you got saved, and then you went home, and you had a bad thought, so you needed to get saved again next week? That's a hyper-Arminianism, that, that every time you mess up, you're kicked out of the family. Okay? We, we don't believe that either. Just because you messed up does not mean you're kicked out of the family of God. It, you're... you're my, when my daughter messes up, I'm, I'm frustrated. If my daughter walked in the room right now and with her four-year-old self took her middle fingers and put them in the air, everyone in the room would go, oh, and then I'm the only one in the room that would be spanking butts, right? Because I have a responsibility to that girl. You guys understand what I'm saying? When you entered into covenantal relationship with God, you've officially allowed him to be the one who has responsibility for you. And so when he puts his, his fatherly hand on your backside, it's not because he's rejecting you. And don't let, don't let a hyper-Arminian posture that says anytime you mess up, you've got to come back and repent, and you need, you need the blood of Jesus. You do need the blood of Jesus to wash your, wash your feet, so to speak, but you don't have to be born again again. Are you, do you guys understand what I'm saying? Our salvation is sure. Okay, Caleb's swimming in theological land right now, so some of you are like, I'm just not paying attention. You cannot pay attention for the next 30 seconds. I'm just saying this for clarity's sake. Okay. Um, if you want to roll your eyes, you can. I do believe in apostasy. I do believe that the scripture teaches such a thing as apostasy. But I don't believe that apostasy is common. I don't believe that your son or daughter who is struggling, in the, in the season of struggling with their faith, is, is in apostasy because they're wrestling through sin. Okay? I believe that when the Holy Spirit commits himself to being the shepherd, he intends to be the shepherd. Um, with that being said, apostasy does seem to be a New Testament idea and people can willfully, I believe, can willfully remove themselves from covenantal relationship. I don't believe God quits on his children, but I do believe children can quit on God. You understand that distinction? That's, that, is, that is our, my at least, and, and understand that I'm the kind of pastor you can think for yourself uh, with these things that aren't, that aren't, there are things in the Christian life that are dogmatic. Jesus is God. 
If you don't believe that, we can't walk in unity. But these things, I'm okay if you think for yourself, but, but this is my theological doctrinal position, that apostasy is possible, but it's not common. Just because your son and daughter slipped into a season of sin, don't freak out, okay? Let's pray. Let's pastor. Let's coach. They haven't lost their salvation yet. Back, there's room. There's room. In, in the same sense that my daughter, she can get herself into a relationship one day, and she could date a boy, and it can go further than it wants to go, and I'm going to have a shotgun ready, right? Like, ready. I'm ready. Woo, I'm ready. Um, if she messes up, I'm not kicking her out, right? Like, my love for her doesn't quit. My, I'm, I'm committed until the end. The only way this relationship's broken if it's broken on her end. I'm committed. And, and that's very much my view of apostasy. And so, uh, again, um, but to be born again is to walk and to live in holiness. And so number three, I'm going to wrap this up quick because I'm just swimming in places we don't need to swim. Number three, our communion with God is largely related to and directly wound up in our level of holiness. What I did not say was our union with God. Okay, your union with God Union is the theological term that's like the wedding day, okay? Your union with God is not, does not shift and change based on the way that you live. But your communion with God does. I woke up yesterday morning, or the, the morning before yesterday, and we're doing that thing. You guys have little kids. We do that thing where you're, um, my wife and I start out in the same bed, and then one kid comes, and so then we shift bed, and we play musical beds all night. Have you guys ever played musical beds? Just a really great game without music uh, where you just keep shifting beds. It's awesome. Um, it's actually from the pits of hell. Um, so we're, we're playing musical beds, right? So I wake up in the other bed because both of the girls in the middle of the night wanted to sleep with mom, okay? Which is good news for me because I got my own bed. Beautiful. So I wake up in the other bed. I hear the girls in the other room, and I think to myself, I have this thought, I'm going to go play with the kids. Like, I'm going to take a couple minutes before I go do Bible study, and I'm going to just go enjoy the kids. So I got in bed with them. I start, like, tickling, doing my thing, and they're fighting. They're pulling each other's hair. They're scratching. They're calling. They're doing everything they can do to pretend like they're in the UFC octagon, okay? They're just punching. Teeth are falling out. There's blood, snot, just a full, full thing. So in this moment, I have an intention of communion, right? Like my intention is to go love on my kids. But because of their behavior, we've now forced ourselves into a disciplined conversation, right? So God intends to live a life. God wants to pour out his spirit. He wants to love you and to fellowship with you. But if you are... If you go home to, tonight and you get on a computer and you start looking at pornography, God's not communing with you while you're looking at pornography. His spirit's telling you to quit, right? And so God may actually want to woo you, like romance you, pour himself out on you, like, like lavish you with his goodness, but he can't do that while you're scratching and calling your sister. Right? Do you get what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit will not be involved in your pornography addiction. He calls himself Holy Spirit for a reason. He, he, you guys get what I'm saying? And so in order to make room for the dove of God, to settle upon our lives, we, we have to live lives of holiness. The other reason why communion is affected by your holiness, why Peter tells us to be holy, the other reason is because, because God... Okay, put this picture in your mind. I wake up on a Saturday morning, and um, the grass needs to be cut. There's weeds everywhere. Dad is outside working in the grass. When my daughter wants to spend time with me, Olivia, the big one, she'll come outside and work with me. She'll work all day long. She talks more than Oprah, but just does not stop talking. 
I don't know what to do about that. I've thought about getting a rag and stuffing it with the duct tape like they do in the movies. Apparently, that's against the law. I don't know. Um, she just comes outside. She's talking all day long. Just talk, talk, talk. When she wants to spend time with me, she does what I'm doing. Okay? So if you want to spend time with God, you can find him ministering to the lost. You can find him praying for... You can, when you start praying for the sick, you start doing what God does. Then you start experiencing a new level of communion with God. You shut yourself in a closet and start interceding for the nations and watch the Holy Spirit just cover you in this new grace because you've, you've, you've now stepped into his work. You're now doing what he's doing. But if you spend all of your life concerned with your own selfishness and doing what... Like, like God might not be communing with you while you're watching American Idol, right? Not against American Idol, I'm in it. Um, but, but, but do what God does and you might find God there. So be holy is also an expression of find yourself busy with God's work and find God's presence. Number four, I'm going to finish this for you. This is primarily when I, where I want to land here. Number four, Peter tells you to be holy because your holiness um, is directly related to your calling. I alluded to Paul telling Timothy that he should set himself apart so that he would be useful to his master. The, the level in which you set yourself apart is directly related to the level in which you are useful to your master. So let me break this down for you logically. Let's go back to the gossip thing. Let's say that, that you are in the room and you've got a problem with gossip. And everybody knows that you're a gossip. You spend all your days gossiping. Your union with God is not thrown away because you have a problem with gossip. God might be trying to talk to you about it, um, but, but what is thrown away is your calling. Because watch, let's say you're a mom in the room and you're a gossiper. You just love to gossip. And your daughter starts to struggle with sin, okay? Your daughter's in a relationship with her boyfriend and she goes further than she wants to go, right? She needs to talk to somebody. Who's she come to? She ain't coming to you. You're in the workplace, right? Everybody knows you're a gossip. Everybody knows that when you sit down, you're talking about someone. And there's a husband and wife, they're starting to have marital issues, right? They're fighting. They, they need help. They know you're a Christian, but they know if they open up to you, you're going to tell everybody. And all you're going to do is expose them rather than help them. You've now lost your calling to your gossip. You are not useful. Okay, you could flesh this out a million different ways. One, one way that I, I talk to guys nonstop about is I have these young guys who want to go into ministry, right? Like, has, have a call to ministry. I sat down to lunch with a guy um, maybe a month ago. I sit down with him, and he says, Caleb, he says, you're a young guy. He says, you grew up with the internet. I did. I grew up with the internet. He says, how do you live free from pornography? He said, my, my parents, you know, older people talk to me about pornography, but I don't think they understand how hard it is when you have the internet at your fingertips all the time. And I, and, and I, and I started to talk to him about a few things, and then I told him, I said, the reason I live free from pornography is because I'm, I'm hungry for the anointing of God on my life. I really want God to use me. And for the last thing I want is to labor day in and day out on preaching this thing faithfully and then to be exposed as a, as, as a porn addict. The last thing I want for, is for you to find out in 10 years that all along Caleb's been looking at porn in his office and for you to throw away everything that I've just labored over. My calling is wrapped up in my holiness. And the, Sin produces death. That's its goal, to rob you of death and purpose. So why is God commanding you to live holy? Because sin will rob you of your purpose. If, if I commit an affair on my wife, the, the elders of this church should snatch my pastoral license and set me down. That's the biblical thing to do. So why does it matter that I live a sexually pure life? 
because God wants to use me, man. And I'm not willing to sacrifice my anointing and calling for a moment of pleasure. You guys get what I'm saying? So number one, number one, sin will rob you of your personal calling. Number two, sin will rob us of our corporate anointing and corporate calling. Let me show you this. Um, Revelation chapter two, okay? Revelation two to four, put yourself there. Revelation two to four, seven churches, right? Jesus speaking to the seven churches. Particularly, I want to talk to you about Ephesus. Do you remember the picture of the, you know, the prophetic picture that John sees? There's, there's lampstands, do you remember? And each lampstand represented a church. And this is what Jesus says to Ephesus in, in Revelation 2, chapter 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So the lampstand of that church it represents their, their ability to shine the light of gospel to their community. Their effectiveness. So to put, put another analogy on it, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. The only thing it's good for is to be thrown on the ground and to use its grip, okay, for people to trample under. So Jesus says to Ephesus, if you don't repent and if you don't get your living right, I am going to remove your ability to be a light for this gospel anymore. I will not allow you to bear my name any longer if you continue to live in sin. Paul tells, Paul, talking about the Jews and Romans, he says that one of God's greatest frustrations, and this is the Old Testament theme, if I had time I could flesh it out for you, um, is that uh, when, when God um, told Moses to pronounce uh, what, what theologians call the ironic blessing on Israel, um, you know the blessing that the Lord keep you, um, shine his face upon you. That, it's called the Aaronic blessing. When they pronounce that, the, the scripture says that um, Aaron was to pronounce that blessing and he was to place the name of God upon that people. And when, when, they, when they received that blessing, the name of God was put upon them. And now the way that they live now reflects who God is. So God's frustrating because when they start to live in sin, they're reflecting God to the nations. They've now entered into a, a unique union with God. And you've entered into the same union when you come into relationship with God, he's frustrated with your living when you live in sin because you're supposed to be the reflection of him to the world. And so when people see you and they say, you're no different than anyone else, they think your God must not be any different than any other God. When they see you and they say, you live like everyone else. You're, you're, you, you are as much of a gossip, but you are as bitter, as you are as mean and angry and bitter as anyone else. Your God must not be any better. You were to reflect the joy of the Holy Ghost. And so um, the, the scriptural principle here is that God tells Ephesus, if they don't repent, and if they don't go back to their works, right? Their works. Now this, I don't believe what Paul, what God is saying to, what Jesus is saying to Ephesus is that they're going to lose their individual salvation. But I do believe he's telling them they're going to lose their corporate calling if they don't repent of their sin and do what they did at first. If they don't let the love for Jesus get hot in their hearts again, and serve and love people, they will no longer be a light to their community. And so our ability to shine as a light to this community is based upon our ability to obey the commands of God. Now, of course, we always want unbelievers in our midst, right? We, we, we are desperate. I am desperate to have some new believers in our midst. I'm desperate to get some people in this room who are backslidden. I want them here, okay? We never want to be a people who say, you're backsliding, don't come around here because we, we, we're trying to keep our anointing. That's, that's not the scriptural principle. 
But the scriptural principle is the core of the church, the teaching of the church, the, the elders and the, you know, the core families of the church. If they are living in open rebellion, then God would remove his purpose from us. So why, the scripture, why, why, does, why does Peter tell us to be holy? Because our calling's at risk. You guys understand what I'm saying there? Okay, last thing, I'm going to finish it for you. Um, the last thing, and, and there's actually quite a few more points. I'm, I'm giving you a base, a base example of why Scripture tells us to be holy. The, the last thing is your reward, okay? So um, uh, Luther said this. He said that um, you're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Okay, so you're saved by faith alone, but saving faith always produces good works. So, so James would say, um, um, you, you say you have faith, um, that's good, that the demons believe and they shudder, I'll show you my faith by my works. So James says that, that, that the expression of my faith is good works, and then Jesus teaches this principle that your, your good works follow you to heaven. They don't get you to heaven, but they follow you to heaven. And Jesus says you should spend your earthly life storing up for yourself a reward for eternity. And so the way that you live today actually affects your eternal destiny. And so that you can live in such a way, you can live with such a holy standard that when you get to heaven, you receive a greater reward than others who just slid by. So there's a matter of reward that continue, it's continually flows to the New Testament. Um, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. Um, I don't know that this is a perfectly biblical idea, okay? So don't, don't hold me to this. This is just a thought that I've kind of clung to for a couple, a couple years now. Um, I like the picture in Revelation. You, you remember where the scripture says that you receive a, you receive a crown of righteousness. You ever, you ever heard that? Um, Paul says uh, in Ephesians 3, um, um, I'm trying to remember the other text. Um, he talks about pressing on uh, towards the goal. He talks about receiving a crown of life. Uh, he uses athlete imagery. Um, so on a couple occasions, he says that we receive some kind of reward. I don't think it's a literal crown. Maybe it is. Um, but do you remember in, in Revelation when the elders are before Jesus, okay? They're, they're, they're 24 elders. They're around Jesus. The angels are praying, holy, holy, holy. And then they take their, you remember what they do with their crowns? They take their crowns off and they cast them down before Jesus. I don't, I don't know this is a perfectly biblical idea, but I live this way. I, 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 I don't know what good silver or gold is in heaven. I don't want anything to do with it. And I often say that if we get to heaven and the streets are paved with gold and I get a mansion, but Jesus is not there, I don't want to be there, okay? Because a big house is not going to fulfill me. I've learned that. The only thing that fulfills me is the presence of Jesus. And so if he leaves a location, I'm leaving the location, right? Um, what, what I like to think is that when I get to heaven, I hope that God gives me a really big crown, like, the, a, like a big one. I hope that I earn a big, big one. Like my neck is just not strong enough, like, I'm, like this, because I can't hold it. And then what I want to do with it is I want to take it and just throw it before him. And I want to say, you are worth so much more than that. Like you couldn't possibly give me a reward that would, that would, that would, that would ever make serving you worth it. Like you're, you're, who you are is worth it. I want to store up treasure in heaven. I just want to throw it before him and say, you're, you're worth much more, so much more precious than that. So, so in, this, in this little teachy lecture here, what I wanted to do this morning is, is I, I, the next couple of times I'm with you, I, I want to take a vein. I want to talk about holiness. I want to focus a little bit on holy living because I think it's important to our calling, okay? But I, I don't want you to ever hear me as a holiness preacher who thinks that, that holiness is your means for salvation. The problem is that we hear a preacher 
preaching holiness and preaching it fervently and we say he's religious. No, I'm not religious if I preach holiness. I'm biblical. I'm religious if I say that your holiness is your means to salvation. I'm, I'm not religious. I'm trying to encourage you towards your calling, towards your destiny. And so what do we want to be? We want to be a church that tightly, with all of the grip of our fists, we want to white knuckle, hold on to this gospel of grace. We never want to, I'm, I'm emphatic that I never want to allow any teaching to touch this pulpit that says you can be saved by your works. That, that, you, that, that we never want to tell sinners, you've lived a gross life, you can't come to Jesus. What we want to tell them is that you've lived a gross life, this blood will wash you clean. I'm emphatic, we want to tightly hold to the gospel of grace, and in the same sense, we want to push that plow forward as we walk into holiness. Because we understand that God can't use us if we live like the world. We can't advance the kingdom of light while we live in the kingdom of hell. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so that's my presentation to you this morning. I want you to seriously consider the gospel. I'm only saved by grace. It never works. Yet God has birthed me into a new kingdom. He is leading me into holiness um, so that we can live in such a way that we're radically pursuing holiness without living under condemnation. Concluding thought. It's very normal. It's very, very normal to live your Christian life and the, 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 the longer you walk with God, the more sinful you feel. It's normal to walk with God and to still feel like, like I'm, not, I'm not there. And, and this is why. I can remember being a young Christian and you having problems that young Christians have. Like I cussed a lot or um, lustful thoughts. And I can remember thinking, if I just get free from these lustful thoughts, if God would set me free, then I would be holy. And you know what happened when I got free from those lustful thoughts? I realized that I was bitter, man, like really bitter. And so I, I went through this process of forgiveness, like, God, help me to walk in forgiveness. Help me here. And then when I got through that process, you know what I realized is that I was self-righteous. Like I had some real problems with self-righteousness. And what's actually happening is the closer you walk to the light, the more the light exposes and the closer you walk to Jesus, the more you get to know him, and the more you realize that you ain't there, my friend. And it's okay to walk with God for a while and not live self-righteous. And so for me, when I meet a self-righteous person, I'm just warning you, not throwing this to anybody, but when I meet a self-righteous person, my natural response is to say, they must not walk very close with Christ. Because if they walked closely with him, they, they, they wouldn't walk with that arrogance. Because you can't, you can't, in your, on your best day, you can't stand next to Jesus with your head held high. You bow. You bow low before him. And so, and so as we walk with him, we just keep, we never, we never get to a place of self-righteousness, but as he, keep, he keeps revealing his goodness. And so um, C.S. Lewis would say this. He would say that all of eternity, um, every time, for, for all of eternity, we'll catch a, a glimpse of God's goodness, of his glory, and we'll fall before him and we'll cry, holy, 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 and then when we get back up and he just turns a little bit, we'll see something else about him and we'll say, oh my God, did you see it? It was wonderful. Did you see it? You, you, you don't really walk with God with a self-righteous spirit. You just can't. You just can't. So how do we become a church that, that pursues holiness and avoids self-righteousness? We, we, we grip down on the gospel and we really walk with him. And if we really walk with him, self-righteousness won't have a place. 
the light of God will, ex- will expose us. I, I, I wake up in the morning and, and my attitude's off and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not like you, Jesus. But in reality, if I, if I lived where I lived today, 10 years ago, I would think that I was it, man. I would think I was the Apostle Paul. But, but, I've, but I've learned more of him. Does that, does that make sense? I've been in prayer, like these moments of prayer where I'm in my closet and I'm just praying and I'm just, just, just crying out. And it's like he, he reveals, like I don't see anything necessarily, but he reveals to me somehow his beauty in a new way and I'm, and I'm mind boggled and I'm, oh my, oh my goodness, I, I didn't know. I, did, I didn't know how good you were. And then I get up out of the closet and, and I see something on TV that, that triggers a thought and I go, oh, oh no. You, you guys get what I'm saying? That's where we want to live. Firmly holding to the gospel, pursuing holiness, always rejecting self-righteousness. And when people come to know the Lord and they've got junk, we're just pulling them right, belong, right behind us in this process of learning and growing. And, and, and I, I, I personally don't believe that we'll ever make it until the last day. There are some who do, some, some who believe that, that perfect holiness is achievable on earth. Um, if it is, I don't think anyone ever achieved it. If Paul said he didn't achieve it, I don't think we have. Um, I don't know if you know, but the man was like torn to shreds, risked his life on multiple occasions. If Paul's not there, I just don't think we are either. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's personal, perfect holiness is achievable. I don't think it is. Um, but I know on that last day, when we see him, we'll be like him. We'll be free from temptation. We'll be free from, from lust. We can rest, truly, truly rest in perfect holiness that he imparts to us. So if you'll stand to your feet, um, I'm sorry, I know that was a little bit like of a lecture, but I really feel the need for us to be able to distinguish those things. Um, this, is, this, is what I feel that, this is what I feel the need to do this morning. Um, as always, ushers, if you, or prayer team, if you'll come forward, um, as always, if you are sick this morning and you want prayer, if you're struggling, if you have a family member that's struggling and you want prayer, if you're going through emotional stuff and you need prayer, the altars are going to be open to you. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know, Caleb, I think I'm still at this station. I don't really know if I've ever truly confessed faith in Jesus. I don't know if I'm really a child of God. I don't know if if God considers me a son. Um, If you want to pray today, we can can promise you there's a very clear way to be sure of that. Uh, It's to receive Jesus this morning. Um, And so if you want to come forward for that, we would love that. Um, But the last thing I want to do is I want to pray... Michael, would you lead us in some worship? Or y'all can put worship on, whatever works for y'all. Um, what I want to do is I want to pray over this house. Um, I want to pray against the spirit of condemnation. So I want to ask God to rid us of a spirit that attempts to push us away from God when we're struggling rather than draw us towards God. And I also want to ask God to give us the discernment and the wisdom to decipher between those voices. Condemnation is the counterfeit of conviction. Conviction says to, says to you, you're better than that. That's not who you are. Step back towards me. Condemnation says to you, God doesn't love you. The church doesn't love you. You don't belong here. We want to reject condemnation thoroughly. We want to learn to love conviction, embrace conviction, allow conviction to lead us. Are you guys with me? Are you okay if we pray that? All right, so if you would, would you just extend your hands? I'm just going to ask that God would kind of impart that wisdom to us. So Holy Spirit, by the powerful name of Jesus, by the authority of your word, we come against the spirit of condemnation in this house. If there's anyone in our family, in our body, who is struggling with sin and who has heard a voice telling them that they don't belong, we silence that voice right now in Jesus' name. 
there's anyone who has heard a voice telling them that they're not good enough or that God doesn't love them or that they can never earn God's love, we tell that voice to be silent in the name of Jesus. And we proclaim that the blood of the Lamb that was shed before the foundation of the world has paid that price. We proclaim the Gospel of Jesus that it's our faith that justifies us. On the moments, in the moments, God, when we're unsure of Your love for us, remind us of our faith in the Gospel. And if we have faith in the Gospel, then we can be sure that we are held in a perfect love. So if there's anyone here who struggled with that kind of voice, God, um, with all the pastoral authority that I have in this season, I know it's a strange season, um, I come against that now. And I pronounce over this house that we are a house that welcomes anything the Holy Spirit wants to speak. Holy Spirit, when you need to correct us, we welcome it. But Holy Spirit, we also need your encouragement. We need you to speak prophetically. God, there are seasons when when I find myself in sin, and I'm unaware. I find myself walking in pride, and 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 it's it's not a willful walking, but I was unaware of this level of pride that's so deep within me. Um, God, in your kindness, lead us to repentance. In your kindness. Give us that kind of wisdom in the sermon, Jesus. Give us that kind of wisdom in the sermon, Jesus. Help us to preach the gospel, the true gospel, the unadulterated gospel of Christ. It's the only message that can truly cause men to pass from darkness to light. Help us, God, we pray. It's in your wonderful, glorious name that we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org.